You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning. I think we're going to have to sign Ryan Albasta to a long-term contract on the drums as he shrinks in his seat. Man, love you, brother. Matthias, dude, you got some dancing moves up here. Loved it. It's so good to just celebrate who God is together, isn't it? Um, well, I think this will probably come in the announcements uh, later on, but tonight we have, or this afternoon really, 4.30, we have a family meeting, which just means all of you should come back. Uh, we're just going to discuss things that are going on in the church, hearing testimonies of God's faithfulness um, while just uh, talking about the news of the church, and we'll be passing on some information. But it's a great time just to continue to get to know one another and uh, to spend enjoyable moments together. I like to say we turn this room into just kind of a family dining room. It's, a, it's an opportunity just to eat together um, and share some moments together as a family. So I encourage you to come back for that. Well, this morning, as Brian read, we're in Psalm uh, 25. And as we get going, I want to ask this as we get out of the gates. Have you ever prayed a prayer similar to this vein of thought that says, God, what is the right way to go? God, what is the right way to go? Like, should I go to grad school? Should I, should I move over here? Should I go out with that guy? Should I dump this girl? Should I, um, should I take this job? Like, how do we know what God wants for our life? How do you know if you're in God's will? I imagine some of us are actually praying this prayer right now. God, what is the right way to go? Who remembers, and kids in the room, maybe this might be really relevant to you, but who remembers Choose Your Own Adventure books? There was a period of my fifth grade life where that was the only piece of literature that I read. I love those books. I think we all know kind of how it goes. Like there's a scenario that you find yourself in, like maybe you're in the jungle, there's these lions and you're trying to escape. And then this lady from this village steps out and she like invites you into the village. And then you have a choice. Do you go with this lady into the village? If so, turn to, you know, page 104. Or do you say, no, no, thank you, and then you turn to page like 131, right? And you have this choice of what are you going to do. And in this situation, it kind of seems favorable, right? So you accept this lady's invitation, you go into the village, it turns out she's a witch, puts a curse on you, you end up in her stew, the end of the story, right? It can end quickly. And if you're like me, over the course of time, instead of starting at the beginning of the book, right, I started at the end of the book, And I saw all of the outcomes, and I chose which one I wanted, and then worked my way backwards to find all the right choices, right? We all did that, right? Not just me. But wouldn't it be great if we could do that in real life? Wouldn't it be great if we could see all the choices that God would have us make in order to stay within his will for our lives? Well, Psalm 25, which you just heard, is is written by David, and it's really a psalm that's known for a a psalm of asking for prayer of guidance. David is looking for God's guidance in his life, and 
And it's, it's interesting that scholars, they can't agree on the, the exact historical or particular context to when David wrote this psalm. But we hear in David's words that it's, it's written during a time of trouble. Look with me at verses um, uh, 16. David says this, he says, Turn to me, God, be gracious to me. Why? Because I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. He says, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Like these are, these are heavy words, aren't they? David is in a desperate time at a crossroads of, of some point in his life where he, he's looking for God's guidance. And we know David's life, a lot is written about it. Maybe this is the time when Saul's hunting after him. Like David says, many are my foes. Maybe this is the time he's grieving the loss of a child. He says, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Perhaps it's after his own sinful, adulterous relationship. He says, forgive all my sins. Maybe it's when he was exiled out of his own kingdom by his son. He says, bring me out of my distress. But whatever the situation David expresses right out of the gates in verse 1, total trust in God. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And in thinking about my own life and in conversation over the years with other Christians, I find that we often flirt with this idolatrous desire of needing to know God's will for my life rather than simply desiring to know God himself, period. And I think the Bible has much to say about God's guidance, but I think it places the emphasis in perhaps a different place than maybe we want, but I think different than the particulars of perhaps the situation or the context that we find ourselves on, and perhaps more on the emphasis of knowing God and becoming the kind of person that God wants you to become. And I think that's what we find in this psalm. That David's praying less for his needed guidance in the particulars of his situation. We don't know what's going on. And that David prays more in this psalm to be more of the kind of person whom God guides. And so that's our big idea this morning. That It's not how God guides, but who God guides. Not how God guides, but who God guides. Let's pray and ask for God and His Spirit to help us this morning. Lord, we ask, Lord, we plead that um, You would open Your Word to our hearts this morning and our hearts to Your Word. Enlarge who You are. May we catch a clear glimpse of who You are this morning. We love You, Jesus. We ask for Your help. In Your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to go and we're going to look at four characteristics. I think there's probably more, but I've chosen four characteristics of a person whom God guides. Four characteristics. In this psalm, you may see a note, and it's a little bit challenging in the sense that it's an acrostic um, psalm, which means I think we all know, right, um, you get an acrostic card, like someone spelled your name and like puts a, a thought or an idea behind, like James, like J, joyful. I always get joyful. Joyful. And then you work through the name. But, you know, you take my second-born kid, like Hazel, you got a Z right in the middle of her name, right? So, like, the logical flow of thought isn't always there in an acrostic form of writing. And so this is far less going line by line and more pulling out the general idea of what I think the psalmist is perhaps capturing. Does that make sense? So four characteristics, it may seem like I'm pulling, but I think I'm getting it fairly close. So the first characteristic is 
this, that those who, um, that God guides those who fear the person of God. That's the first characteristic, those who fear the person of God. We see that in verse 12. Look with me. He says, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him, the person who fears the Lord, him, um, I just lost my, him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. So David is saying right out of the gates, those who fear God, God guides. Those who fear God, God guides. So what does it mean to fear God or to fear the Lord? What does that imply? Well, I think first it demands a right understanding of who God is, a right understanding of who God is. And we see throughout scripture that when God shows up on the pages of our Bible, men, women, and even angels like fall down on their faces. And I think we see, you know, the classic encounter is is Isaiah in chapter um, six, when Isaiah encounters God in his throne room. You go to the next slide here. It says, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robes filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, the original fog machine. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen who? The King, the Lord of hosts. So as Isaiah enters this throne room of God, he what? He becomes undone. Why? Because he's standing in the presence of the brilliant glory and majesty and holiness of God, and he instantly recognizes his own sinfulness compared to God's eternal greatness. And he cries out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And even the great seraphim that we see in this this verse, these massive angelic creatures, they cover their eyes in the presence of God. To fear God demands a right understanding of who God is. And this is a terrible illustration, but it's all I could come up with. But as a kid, did you ever go to like the soda fountain and put every flavor of pop in your container? Where I was from in Iowa, it was called the suicide. It was for the brave. Others say it's for the dumb. But the suicide is a drink of indefinable mixture. As I think about it now, at 38 years old, that's gross. But as a 12-year-old kid, that was awesome. Lots of different flavors in one drink. Terrible illustration. But fearing God is like having this drink of indefinable mixture. There's all this mixed up in our cup of reverence and joy and awe and pleasure and terror and affection all within this thing that we're going to drink. It's saying that there's terror and reverence and trembling and recognizing our sinfulness before him. And at the same time, equally true, it's awe and affection and rejoicing and recognizing our salvation because of him. And David's saying the starting point, you want God to guide you, is to rightfully recognize who God is. But there's also one step further. Verse 14. David says, the friendship of the Lord is for who? The friendship is for those who fear him. You see, it's not only rightful recognition of who God is, it's also right relationship with God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. God is far from just some random genie where we rub the lamp and get our wishes. He's creator, he's majestic, he's holy, he's brilliant, yet also he extends to us through the person of Jesus a relationship. David says it's a friendship. 
And this is wild that despite our, our sinfulness, despite all the wrong and harm we've done to him, we're invited to take a seat at his table in his house. The fear of the Lord is right recognition and right relationship with who God is and what he has done. So as you sit here this morning, who do you say God is? How would you define, what word would you put it on your relationship with God? J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, gives just a fantastic illustration that I think is really helpful here. Talking about two different common paths of how we think we know God. And he, he describes it like this, that there's these two paths and he relates it to two different sorts of people who've all gathered together at this veranda, at this resting spot by the side of a road. And he says, one, there's one group of people who are travelers. They've come to this veranda. They're taking a rest briefly before continuing on the road. That's the first group of people. And then he says there's a second group of people whom he calls balconiers. People from the town who, who've come, they're not walking the road, but they've come just to gather here at the veranda just to endlessly spend their day debating about the, debating about the road with those traveling the road. Does that make sense? We got, we got um, those walking the road and those who've just gathered there to debate the road. And they're, they're perhaps debating things like, well, where might the road lead after this little resting spot? Like, what might you see on the road? Like, where does it go beyond that curve? Perhaps they're going to say, well, is there even a road? And he goes on to say that these balconiers talk and debate with these travelers as ones who think they know the road, but they don't know the road because they've never walked the road. Today, we're, we're all just a Google search away from knowing a lot about God, aren't we? We can find good doctrine, sound theology. We can Google that. We can conceptually talk about God from what we read, but all of that is vastly different from actually experientially knowing God as he is. Are you a balconier this morning? Perhaps conceptually able to talk about God, thinking you know who God is. Or are you a traveler? Are you actually on the road, walking out your relationship, experiencing the fullness of all of his love and all of his holiness? If you want to be a person God guides, fear the person of God. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is being trained in the ways of God. Being trained in the ways of God. We see this in verse 4. I read earlier this morning during confession. David says, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Over and over again, kind of on repeat in the Psalms and Proverbs, there's this language of ways and paths. Remember back to Psalm 1, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's two ways, there's two paths. It's common language in our Bible. And they each, each of these ways, paths, lead to two different destinations, right? Jesus himself expresses that back in Matthew. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the what? The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's two ways, there's two paths, two different destinations, one to life, one to destruction. And so David prays, Lord, make me to know your way. Teach me your path. 
You see, David's familiar enough, as we know, he's familiar enough with the ways of God to know there's a path that leads to life and a path that leads to destruction. So he prays, Lord, teach me to be trained in your ways. Help me stay on the path, your path, that leads to life. Let's think about basketball for a moment. The GOAT, Michael Jordan, no debate, right? I don't think so. Just dates me, I guess. But after a game in which Michael Jordan played, uh, he did this all the time, but as he's coming, as he's driving to the basket and there's like two defenders in front of the rim, like impossible to score, right? Michael Jordan just jumps and kind of just leaps through both defenders and slam dunk, right? He scores. And after this game, there's like this classic interview where a reporter says, did you know what you were going to do before you jumped? Like, what, what, was in, what was your thought process? Like, help us understand what, what, was in, what was your idea as you're jumping into defenders, right? And Michael Jordan, as only him can respond, he says, I jump and decide in the air. I jump and decide in the air. Meaning this was an in-the-moment response. It was an instinct that just came naturally to him. In sports, as we think about sports just in general, it's all about in-the-moment responses, instincts, which always results from purposeful and persistent training mixed with perhaps talent that God gives you. And this is why in basketball or any sport, but in basketball, if we stay with basketball, like you have situational practices. Those who have played the sport, like you practice against a shot clock with only three seconds to go. You practice inbounding a pass against a press coverage. You practice your defense against all different offensive strategies. You practice these things because coaches want to coach their players not only the fundamental skills, but also just as importantly to read the in-game situation so they will skillfully respond when that moment happens in the game. And the New Testament says it like this in Hebrews chapter 5. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, what? Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Being trained in the scripture gives you the instinct to know what God wants. Which means if you want to know the will of God, you must be saturated in God's word. To purposefully and persistently work on our skill of understanding scripture so that when we're in midair like MJ with the basketball, like it's just instinct in that moment to discern what God's way is. It's second nature. We just instinctively know the ways of God able to discern what is good and evil. We have to, though, purposefully and persistently work on that skill of applying Scripture. There's a great illustration of this in C.S. Lewis's story, The Silver Chair. Many of you have probably read it, where Aslan Lyon gives Jill the task of finding the lost prince of Narnia. And he gives her four signs that will help her or aid her on her quest to find this lost prince. And he says something to the effect of, as Aslan's talking to Jill, he says, remember, remember the signs, these things he's given her. Say them to yourselves when you awake in the morning, when you lie down at night, and whatever strange things may happen, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. Believe the signs, nothing else matters. And as the story goes, Jill begins well, she memorizes, she remembers the signs, but in time she fails to remember the signs. And at a critical 
moment where she's needing guidance, someone asks her, are you sure of the signs? And here's her response. She says, oh, come on, bother with the signs. Bother with the signs. Doesn't that capture you and I often? We hear over and over again, like from a young age, if we've grown up in the church, like you need a devotional life. You need to be memorizing scripture. You need to be meditating on truth. You need to be reading your Bible. We hear that on repeat, drilled into us every Sunday. And like Jill, at least for me, we do well for seasons of time, but it's evident that over time I, I get lazy and apathetic to the importance of God's word in my life. And if someone was, if we're in crisis and someone were to ask, how's your devotional life? We want to say, we probably don't say, we want to say like Jill, oh, bother with the devotional life. I've done the Bible memorization. I've done the Bible reading. I'm in a crisis. Like, that hasn't got me anywhere. Don't you see where I'm at right now? But in that moment, we've neglected. What we fail to see is that we've neglected the very guidance that God's given to us in his word. Someone once said this, you won't live out the will of God any more than you know the word of God. You won't know the will of God any more than you know the word of God. You want to be a person God guides, be a person who gets in his word. So who does God guide? First characteristic is one who fears the person of God. Second is being trained in the ways of God. And thirdly, it's one who's obedient to the commands of God. One who's obedient to the commands of God. Meaning we don't just read our Bibles, that's a fantastic start, but we actually do what the Bible says. Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who what? Who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Keeping God's covenant and testimonies is obedience. So David says those who obey the commands of God, God guides. We do what God says. And often when we're in the middle, I know for me, in contemplating God's will for our life, we often... um, given to this notion that suggests until I fully know God's will, like I'm just going to sit and wait. And that seems kind of biblical and right. However, I believe that it's as we walk in obedience, which may require waiting, but as we walk in obedience to God and what he says, it's there in our obedience to God that we'll discover God's will for our lives. Here's what I mean. It's an illustration that's been used often. Is Imagine like right out here, there's this a massive tractor truck. There's a massive truck, fully loaded, 80,000 pounds, blocking everybody's way out of the parking lot, and we're stuck here. Right? And in that parked position, it's impossible, I would suggest, to steer that thing out of here. It's not going anywhere. We're going to have to get cranes in here to like move it, to steer it out of the parking lot. However, if you and I got into the cab and shifted from park into first gear and get the vehicle slowly moving, right? Moving this 80,000 massive truck is suddenly very possible. Actually super easy to steer it out of the parking lot. What I'm trying to say or suggest is it's far more possible to steer a moving truck than a park truck. Once a truck is in motion, you can steer it. And likewise, as we get in the motion of obeying the commands of God, it's there that we'll find our lives are quite possible to be steered in the right direction to walk out the will that God has for our life or his plan for our life. Elizabeth Elliot 
says it way better than I just did. Widow of Jim Elliot, who was a missionary killed many decades ago. And she says this, and this is profound. Does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying the thing that lies before us today? How many momentous events in Scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend upon it, and you will be shown what to do next. I read that, and that was like a dagger. Like, God, I, I, I want your guidance for this thing here, but, but over here, God, like, I got it. I can do this in my own way. I can, I can solve this without you. And I think it's why David in Psalm 9, or in verse 9 says, he leads the humble. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Because humility pushes aside what you think is best and accepts what God says is best. If you want to be a person God guides, be obedient to what God has already revealed in Scripture. Who is the person that God guides? One, the one who fears the person of God. Secondly, is one who's trained in the ways of God. And thirdly, is one who's obedient to the commands of God. And lastly, it's one who trusts in the promises of God one who trusts in the promises of God. That what God says he'll do, he'll do. And and here's the rub. I think we all feel, whether we express it or not, that the ways and the paths of God are often foreign to the ways of the past, the way our world operates and thinks. I tell students in youth group all the time, because I felt this as a kid, was just, it's okay to be different or odd to your schoolmates. Apostle Peter, Peter tells us, he says, we're strangers passing through a foreign land. So as we live out the ways of God in this life, we must possess a deep trust in the promises of God to be different. And David expresses this in verse 3. He says, indeed, none who wait for you, God, shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. I think the hard part of all this is just the waiting, right? No one wants to wait. I was just in Walmart the other day, and there's like all those cash registers, right? But I'm going to walk down to the one that's open. I'm not going to wait in line even if there's just one person in line, right? Oftentimes when you do it, you're like the last person because whatever. Um, But we live in a culture that wants things now, right? Waiting is hard, but David places 100% confidence in waiting on the promises of God. And he says in verse 2, oh my God, in you I trust. Not myself, but in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. David's demonstrating in this psalm a total trust in the promises of God for his deliverance. And as Christians, we have to wrestle through this in this life, this tension of living in the already but not yet What Jesus accomplished on the cross in the empty tomb, it is sufficient. We can take that to the bank. But as we live in our broken and beautiful world, it can seem at times that Jesus was not or is not victorious. We feel that. And we can look around like David does in this psalm and feel, as he says, the violent hatred of encroaching enemies. And yet this does not negate the absolute certainty of what God says is true. Are you struggling to believe God today? One of his promises. I have those moments. I think David does too. 
Many years ago, George MacDonald wrote a book called The Princess and the Goblin. A lot of you have read it. It's a story that I think captures well this final truth that we'll close on this morning. It's a story of an eight-year-old princess, Irene, who lives amongst goblins. Um, And this is, I'm going to take a little bit of a summary from Tim Keller and his commentary in the book of Mark, which is an excellent commentary that he gives. So a lot of these words are his. But if you haven't read the story, or just to refresh you on the story of the princess and the goblin, it's Irene who one day discovers her fairy grandmother, and she gives her this beautiful ring that has a piece of thread tied onto it that's connected to a ball which her grandmother will hold. So you have this ring with thread connected to a ball of thread uh, that her grandmother holds. And as Irene has this ring, her grandmother uh, says this. She says something to this effect. If you ever find yourself in danger, take off your ring, put it under your pillow, place your fingers on the thread, and follow the thread wherever it may lead you. And it may seem to you a very roundabout way, but you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. This is the grandmother's words. And a few days later, goblins come into the house and hearing the snarling uh, in the hallway, Irene follows the instructions of her grandmother. And she places the ring under her pillow and begins, she feels for the thread and begins to feel, or to walk follow the thread, trusting it will lead her to safety. I think hoping it will lead her to her grandmother. But to her horror, to dismay, the thread begins to take her actually outside to the cave of the goblins. Yet she continues to follow the thread. And she enters the cave and the thread actually leads her to this giant pile of rocks, a dead end. And through tears and anguish, Irene remembers in that moment the words of her grandmother who said, don't doubt the thread. And so resolved to follow this thread, she begins to tear down the wall of stone, stone by stone. And though her fingers soon bleed, she continues to pull the stones away. And as she's pulling these stones away, suddenly she hears a voice. And it's her friend, Curdie, who'd been trapped in the goblin's cave. And he, he's astounded, and he asks her, well, how did you ever find me here? And she says, well, my grandmother sent me. And she says this, and I think I found out why. And then they, she removes the, the rock, she frees Curdie, and Irene, though, continues to go deeper and deeper into the cave. And Curdie objects, he says, why are you going there? That, that's not the way out. And Irene replies, and I love this response, I know that. But this is the way the thread goes, and I must follow it. And trusting that thread against all odds, Irene escapes. You see, the thread proved trustworthy because her grandmother was trustworthy. And the ways and the path, the promises of Jesus are trustworthy because Jesus is trustworthy. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's in a sense saying, I'm going to take you on a journey to places where you're going to say, why are you taking me here? And he's going to say, I want you to keep trusting me, to stick with me, to not turn to the left or to the right, to not give up, to turn back, keep following me, keep trusting me. I don't know about you, but follow the thread. Really, Jesus? 
I say, I think probably you say, well, that sounds pretty difficult, Jesus. And it is. You're right. It will be. The thread will take us into seemingly dead-end places. Places where you will get bloody. Places where the only way to follow the thread looks like it will crush you, just like in the story. But even there, in those places, we're called to trust Jesus. To not turn back or give up. We're called to trust as David trusts God in the psalm, saying, none who wait for God shall be put to shame. Some of you may be just asking, well, James, how in the world can that be true? How can that be true? Because I'm confident of this. King Jesus is not going to crush you. Why? Because he was crushed for you. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. Amen? The thread of Jesus is trustworthy because Jesus is trustworthy. If you want to be a person that God guides, four characteristics in Psalm 25. Be one who fears the person of God. Be trained in the ways of God. Be obedient to the commands of God. Be one who trusts in the promises of God. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning that you are trustworthy. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've given us yourself, your very life, that we may find life, eternal life in you. Lord, I pray for any here in this room this morning who have not put their trust or faith in you. Lord, by the power of your spirit and word, would you put them to life? May they see their utter need for you, that you are worthy to be trusted. May they see the beauty of who you are. Lord, I pray for those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, that we would continue to be a people who fears you, to be a people continually wanting, desiring to be trained in your ways and to obey and to, to follow through on what you say and to continue to trust that you are trustworthy, even when it doesn't make sense. Lord, we love you. Help us to be this type of person by the power of your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.